attitude assumes form. The beliefs that we have always result in some sort of material object and the more we are refined about what we believe, the more effective we will be as designers. Welcome to Tete a Tete, the Rice Architecture Podcast Series. I'm your host, Rose Wilkowski, and I'm thrilled to bring you a special episode featuring a lecture by Jack Self, entitled Attitude as Form. Jack is the founder and director of The Real Foundation, an architectural practice based in London. He's also the editor-in-chief of The Real Review, a contemporary culture magazine circulated in Britain. Jack gave this lecture on October 22, 2018, as part of the Platt and Rice Design Alliance lecture series on sharing. This lecture was also an installment in the Cullinan lecture series. So let's tune in. Good evening. Thank you so much for such a generous introduction. Thank you also to uh, Rice, to Platt, to the RDA for um, bringing me all the way here from London, which um, is a really rare uh, and very valuable opportunity for me. And I'm really looking forward, in as much as I'm looking forward to presenting my work to you, I'm particularly interested to hear from you about your reactions to it. Um, of course, the tension between these two entities, that, or three entities that have invited me, is uh, how one, most of my work, or much of my work, deals with questions of sharing um, in different ways. And in that sense, what I've attempted to do is present a lot of these ideas about sharing through the lens of uh, conduct, which, um, which is, uh, was an initial uh, kind of prompt from Sarah. Um, I believe she said it as a way to avoid having these kind of and then, and then, and then lectures in which someone just kind of rattles through their recent projects, but in a sense to try and bring them together. And certainly, uh, I think then what I want to try and do is describe or discuss this, this issue of sharing through the lens of, of conduct. Um, of course, conduct for me has maybe two possible interpretations in architecture. There is the conduct of the architect themselves as a social figure, as a political figure, um, as a cultural figure, and of course, the question of conduct as it applies to architecture itself, how we make space, how people behave in space, um, and what the implications are for when we try to take our beliefs and our value systems and make them into um, built form. Uh, starting with the, the idea of the architect, um, of course we have, there are various degrees of this idea of conduct and the obligation and responsibility that we have in society. There are moral principles, which in a way are developed internally, a priori in, in a sense. There are, of course, ethical obligations, which come to do with uh, social norms, what's considered to be appropriate for an architect to engage in. And um, I'm less familiar with the US context, but of course in Britain, when you become a registered architect, as I am, you must subscribe to a professional code, which is extremely clear about uh, what, what's expected of you. Um, but in spite of all of these uh, kind of conditions, what I've noticed is that there is uh, very little um, reflection on the part of the architect as to uh, how to design the figure of the architect themselves. I mean, we're, we're very used to designing many forms of structures, but the idea that the architect themselves is a design project seems to have been kind of forgotten. It was definitely something which was very present, I think, throughout the 70s and 80s, but seems to have somehow drifted away. Uh, and, and that comes down to very kind of banal terms in a way, what you name your structure. Is it a bureau? Is it an office? Is it an atelier? Is it a studio? These are all very different entities. And of course, behind that, there are legal and corporate ramifications. You know, are you a company? Are you a cooperative? Uh, are you a partnership or a joint venture? Um, companies, of course, being for profit, cooperatives being uh, distributing the profit internally, a partnership, which can be a group of multiple entities, and joint ventures, which tend to be uh, special purpose vehicles, so entities which are created just for one activity. The real foundation is an unusual outcome of what happens when we started to think about the idea of the architect and the architectural firm as a design project. Um, in an American context, foundation seems to suggest that we have a lot of money. We're perpetually broke. Uh, but actually, uh, 
in the UK, foundation is a kind of voluntary governance system. So we're a normal limited company, but we have this idea of um, a board of advisors who are independent, who look at our projects and consider whether or not our projects are in accordance with our core social ambitions, our social mission. And in, uh, in a sense, this is boiled down what we often say, the real foundation is dedicated to the promotion of democracy, inclusivity, and equalities of many kinds, amongst them but not limited to gender, race, class, wealth, and space. So we can't take on projects which don't address and attempt to promote those values in some way. Um, I'll say more about that a bit later on. But of course, this uh, sphere that I'm describing is quite separate from an idea of material design, which is normally where architecture leads you. This leads you into a sphere of immaterial design, which is systems design, communications design, um, project finance, planning policy, procurement, logistics, contract models, strategic development, and actually comms and marketing are really often overlooked by architects, but can be very uh, interesting spheres for design. And in that sense, I want to present a couple of immaterial projects to you to give you an indication of what happens when you take architectural thinking and you apply it to something that's non-architectural. Um, we have in the UK the Royal Institute of British Architects. They produce a standard architect's contract which is used for all new appointments. Uh, and you can add to it uh, appendices which have to do with fee structures. I'm aware that this might be a little dull, but bear with me. Uh, you can add to that fee structures and other types of addendums um, which can alter the conditions of the contract itself. And one of the first projects uh, that I did after I started my process of becoming a registered architect was I was approached by uh, an Italian professor at the London School of Economics who wanted to renovate his apartment. And, um, you know, we got talking about it and uh, I said, well, you know, I don't know if I'm fully qualified to do it. And he said, well, that's okay. I haven't got any money anyway. I said, well, how are you intending to pay me? He said, I don't know, I thought we might work something out. And that sort of got me thinking about this. And, and so what I did was I came back to him with an addendum to, uh, he owned his own apartment, which was rare. He also had no debt on the apartment, which was equally rare. And so what we suggested to him was we would create an appendix which said that we, when he resold that apartment, we would take 2.5% of the market value. And we would take no fees up front as a result. And the consequence of that was twofold. The first was we became effectively partners in the design in as much as he would say, you know, I want marble tiles. And we would say, yeah, but marble tiles from an economic standpoint are not going to maximize the resale value and so on and so forth. So there was an entire kind of economic analysis of the project, which is very different from how an architect would normally think about it. There was a lot less whim and, and arbitrary decision making from the client. And the second um, consequence of it was that of course, we were taking a huge risk, which was that he might hold that apartment for five years or he might hold it for 10 years or 20 years. Who knows when we're going to get paid because it's only on the resale. But the advantage of that was that the longer he waited to sell it, in principle, the market would continue to go up. And hopefully that 2.5% would continue to grow with every year. And so we were trying to turn the risk of being a young architectural studio and not being able to get paid into a potential future benefit through this redesign of a, of a standard contract structure, what we called Operation Appendix. The second uh, project I want to show you of this kind was a commission for the Tate uh, Modern. They've just completed a new fancy structure it's called the Switch House by um, Herzog and Neuron. And they approached us to do an exhibition there on the fifth floor, which for them is a very problematic floor. Basically, the fourth floor is the permanent collection. Lots of people go there. And the sixth floor is an observation deck, which gives you beautiful views, and everyone goes there. But the fifth floor is dedicated to community projects, so no one ever goes there. And the staircase to get there is very small. It's very inaccessible in a way. So if you have 3,000 people on the fourth floor, you might get 50 or 60 on the fifth floor. Um, and so the only brief was, Please attract as many people as possible to this space. Uh, also, could you talk about universal basic income? And I was like, okay. It, it, was, it was quite a kind of conflicting brief in a way. But so the approach was this. Okay, here's the concept, right? 2017, 100 years since the Russian Revolution. Two types of communists at the start of the Russian Revolution, the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. 
The Bolsheviks thought that everyone should be working class and be proletariat, and the Mensheviks thought that everyone should be middle class and therefore live in a, in a high standard of living. But in order to do that, they realized that they were going to have to automate most forms of work in society, and they weren't really sure how to do that. In any case, it didn't make any difference because the Bolsheviks murdered all the Mensheviks, and that put an end to it, right? But thinking about this idea of bourgeois, bourgeoisie, what it means to be bourgeois, and the essence of being bourgeois is to make money while not working. Um, you make money from someone else's labor. And we thought it would be a nice gesture to try and give everyone the opportunity to be bourgeois. So the idea was that you turn up in the exhibition, it kind of looks like this. It's a series of soft and hard forms wrapped in this carpet which is used for expo centers because you can have 200,000 people traffic it and it doesn't matter. And whereas every other exhibition in the Tate Modern would ask you to pay uh, 16 or 20 pounds in order to go there, this one would be the only exhibition that would pay you to attend. So you turn up, you take a ticket, and you wait for your number to be called, which is a very English activity. Everyone would be very comfortable with that. And at the conclusion of uh, 25, 35, 40 minutes, um, you can't leave the space because then your number might be void. Uh, so you have to be there. And then at the conclusion, you get an artwork, which is a kind of poster, which says at the bottom, this poster is worth 250 pounds. The idea was that we were gonna create and give away one million pounds worth of art over the course of eight days. And the Tate Modern said, um, you know, okay, yeah, interesting concept, but like, is this one million pounds worth of art or is this like one million pounds worth of art? And I said, uh, well, of course, it's an interesting question because if, if I say it's worth 250 pounds, then you know, put it on eBay, see what you get. But if you say it's worth 250 pounds, you're effectively the central bank of art. So it probably is worth 250 pounds. You probably are creating this. And they said, we feel very uncomfortable about this relationship with <laughs> art and the way that you're handling the production of value in the artistic uh, realm. And I said, okay, fine, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll, we'll come up with something else. And they said, actually, we'd really prefer not to work with you anymore. So the project got canceled. <laughs> Um, th this project I'm going to present very, very, two projects from this series I'm going to present quite rapidly and then come back to it as an overall series. The Ingot was a project that was done in 2013 before I founded Real, um, and the logic was to ask a kind of, basically a moral question and um, uh, to make a moral assertion, which was it should be the case that people uh, should be able to live uh, very um, cheaply in the most expensive part of the city. I was particularly thinking of key, what we call key workers, which are people like uh, people who work in the fire services, in the police service, in uh, health, in education. They should be able to live cheaply close to where they work, and that's not the case at the moment. So the question was, if you pick the most expensive, the epicenter of price, which is right next to London Bridge, what do you have to do? Like, what are the financial parameters? What are the economic conditions? What are the architectural forms that are needed in order to create a building that satisfies that? And the conclusion was this 350-meter, uh, what's that, 1,100 1, feet high uh, gold-plated skyscraper called the Ingot. Um, and I'll just show you this animation very quickly. Basically, as some of you will be aware, of course, all development is a kind of trade-off between time, space, and money, and all developers are trying to create the kind of densest, cheapest, fastest uh, model of uh, architecture that they can. But what this model started to do was play with the dimension of time. In Japan, they used to have 80-year mortgages, which were quite an incredible thing because the person who's lending you the money, the bank, gets a lot of interest over 80 years. They actually get many, many more times the amount that they've lent out than they would on a shorter loan. The person who lives there effectively gets very subsidized rent because when you divide the cost of a home over 80 years, it, it's much lower. And of course, the building itself needs to be very sustainable because if it falls apart within 80 years, you know, you've lost your investment. So in a way, taking this idea of using long-term finance, um, I worked with PricewaterhouseCooper and uh, the Royal Bank of Scotland to start analyzing existing property models and designed an algorithm that could ba basically generate um, uh, a low-cost housing. You can see in this animation, it uses a bond. As the bond term goes up, the amount of time that you pay it off, the market rate on the right-hand side begins to fall. Uh, and then your return on investment, we, we tweaked that slightly. Um, I'm not going to go into the details of all of that, but basically the ambition was to create 
a uh, was that 900 square foot apartment for uh, a 70 percent of the market rate. Um, this has to do with with governance structures in in the UK. But there was another aspect to it, which was in medieval times, uh, churches used to use the value of the lead in their cathedral roofs as a way to lend out to local um, farmers. This idea was to uh, plate the building in gold. You put about 250 million pounds worth of gold into the facade at the start. And over the course of 50 years, which was the period that you were paying off the, the bond, um, the value in principle based on data from the last five centuries would go up about 3,000%, uh, as we'll see in a moment. So you're trying to use the increasing value of the material itself in the building as a way to leverage other types of activities. And in fact, you could pay off the whole building just by the appreciation of the facade. Um, this is the condition that it was responding to, uh, which is one which I'm sure you'll be familiar with here. I would describe it as the anonymous and alienated, precarious worker uh, surrounded by objects of desire which are completely out of reach. And you may remember that in 2011, London had a massive riot. Uh, the English, they don't really do like protests like the French. You know, the French get very ideological about it. The English are basically like, all rules are off, let's riot. And they just smash and grab, right? And that's, we're, we're, we're maybe the first capitalist country and we know that the best way to express our political opinion is by stealing stuff. And that I think tells you a lot though about the kind of pent up anxiety and the concerns which are in that populace, which is you cannot advertise to a group of people telling them they've got to have the latest sneakers, the latest sh you know, sports gear, all of this amazing fashion, and then not give them a material means to, to achieve that. Uh, and, and that was what it was trying to deal with. The derivative architecture series is a, is a range of projects that began with the ingot and then one per year up until the current time. And each one has tried to deal with a different aspect of how we use finance, planning and policy and architectural form to try and create social change. Um, so of course there was the ingot. Uh, in 2014 I did a project called Default Grey, um, which uh, I won't go into, but this is the same algorithm that's running on an iPad in order to demonstrate how, in a sense, form follows finance. And as you begin to alter the parameters on the right-hand side in terms of how much you're paying out, uh, how, how, what the financial terms and conditions of the capital are, you can see how the form of the building itself changes. And this was kind of a, quite an important moment for me in terms of understanding how we can design social outcomes um, through this built form. Uh, <coughs> I won't go into, I, I'm concerned of spending too much time on any one specific project, so I won't go into the details of this, but the idea was basically to avoid having um, increased density. So half of the floor plate is uh, occupied by these 15 individual micro studios, and the other half is by this uh, communal area. This was, uh, or this sort of open floor plan, this was generated by the fact that in the area in London that it was proposed for, they have a real shortage of three-bedroom apartments or more. Um, this is because developers are producing one- and two-bedroom apartments, which have the highest return on them. As a result, if you don't belong to, um, quote-unquote, a traditional nuclear family, uh, then you'll really have, you know, if, if, you, if you have four or five children, there's really very few places that you can live. And so this idea was that um, you can start with one, but every time you expand, you can knock out walls between them in order to agglomerate them into larger uh, groups. Uh, but when you do that, the living room in the front turns into a bedroom at the back, and so you always preserve the same number of bedrooms across the floor plan. The idea was that ultimately you might try and have 15 people sharing and having to negotiate the rules of, of one of these uh, communal spaces, which represents half of their apartment. Empire Hotel was basically the Hilton International meets uh, the Chelsea Hotel. I don't know if you're familiar with this. It used to be an American, uh, a New York hotel where you could pay for uh, your, it was for creatives and artists. You could pay for your rent with creative labor. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I won't go into that, except to say that I often use this image as a way of testing out what constitutes luxury in different countries. I'm very interested at the moment, if you think of someone like Donald Judd, the moment at which like prisons become uh, like extremely expensive, like how you create that moment of luxury. And so I often start with a blank render and then slowly add in the materials. And what I've discovered is that for the British, 
The things they like are a little bit of brass, but not too much. A little bit of marble, but not too much. But the thing that really gets them worked up is the idea of the Persian rug. And m my thinking around this is that the Persian rug represents kind of a hangover of imperialism and all of the exoticism that's tied up in this idea of the Orient. And this idea of kind of being a colonial power uh, an imperial power is deep in the psyche of the English, which is partly why we're so in such a dire situation at the moment. Um, the common stock was done for the British Pavilion in Venice, and uh, I'll talk more about that in a minute. Glasshouse was the first project that we did that meets all of the building regulations um, in the UK. So we're, we're slowly kind of beginning to zero in on creating a realistic uh, building product um, it was presented at the Chicago Biennial last year, and this is a project that was developed earlier this year, and um, fingers crossed, I can't say too much more about it, but hopefully will be realized and will, um, if it is realized, start an, a chain reaction of producing very low-cost uh, rental properties in London. Um, the other types of immaterial projects that we work on are things like Real Review, this, as I said earlier today, to put it in an American context, is part of our recognition that you need to not just produce architectural form, but you also need to uh, conquer a battle for hearts and minds. And part of that is a kind of attitude of shock and awe. So we produced this uh, quarterly cultural magazine, um, which addresses what it means to live today. That's the slogan of the magazine. It's not um, based on themes. It's based on an idea of a current mood, which is basically to say, you know, what is the zeitgeist right now and what can we learn from that? A lot of people are very dismissive of trends, but I find that um, trends, if you analyze them intellectually, can tell you a lot about what's happening in society. So we're quite keen on using that as a way to inform our architectural uh, design and use it also as a platform for research. So this is an article, this is a review of CrossFit, including some of the CrossFit slogans. The only thing stopping you is you. That's the one I like the best. Um, these are some photographs by the French philosopher Jean Baudrillard. Um, this was uh, the only project that Mies van der Rohe um, ever designed for the UK, and we subsequently published a book on that uh, several years later at great expense to the, almost to the point of bankrupting real. We got real close, had to fire everyone, close the studio. This was in March. It was a real disaster. Instead of costing £20,000 and taking a year, it cost £100,000 and took three years. Um, but the reason I mention it is... Um, uh, the reason I mention it is because publishing both magazines and other forms of cultural production, I think are really important when you're trying to communicate these ideas around uh, equality um, to a broader audience as possible. And the design of this book itself was intended, it's basically intended to have all of the academic information which is required in order for it to be a rigorous and well-researched book. But it's also effectively designed like a coffee table book um, in which 5,000-word academic essay is split through these image and captions. The reason for this is I have in mind almost always when I uh, produce books the readership being like my mom. She's uh, an intelligent woman. Um, she's not especially interested in architecture, although she's open to convincing. And in a way, if we're going to talk about some of these issues, which I'm going to come on to in a minute, which are you know deep societal and... Um, Know, fundamental structures of how we organize our society, you need to make sure that you're able to bring other people with you. Um, and now we come to architecture, which is, of course, the main purpose of all of this. Um, and I, I had forgotten all about this image, actually, but then Francis mentioned that he'd been involved in putting it on the poster for tonight's event. And uh, it reminded me why it is I produced it in the first place, which is uh, I'm quite a heavy smoker, although I periodically attempt to quit. It's very difficult in America because the cigarettes are much cheaper here. Uh, but, of course, if you think about... Um, I, I remember in the, in the mid-90s, uh, my grandmother lived in New York, and one of her favorite restaurants was at the top of... Uh, it was Windows on the World at the top of the World Trade Center. And we would sometimes, as a special treat, go there for brunch. And, of course, everyone could smoke indoors. Um, and when you try to describe to someone who's even kind of five years younger than me 
that experience of what it was like to be at a restaurant where everyone was smoking, it's, it's very hard to capture that, that kind of reality or the idea that you could smoke on a flight. You know, this was kind of seen as very odd. And so I'm very interested in how very banal objects um, become representative of their time. Uh, something which 20 years ago would have been entirely banal, which is an ashtray and a cigarette lighter indoors, now becomes almost a kind of provocative uh, statement in itself. So I'm, I'm particularly interested in how these objects in the home um, come to represent uh, the power relations within our society and then how we, through that analysis, we can intervene in them. And for this, I would say my biggest enemy is functionalism. I've worked very, very hard to kind of move beyond functionalism. And by that, I mean, this is the time and motion study um, done by the Galbraiths in, at the turn of last century. Uh, they, you may be familiar with it, they put lights on the end of um, workers in Fordist production lines, and then they used long exposure photography in order to see how workers were moving across different elements of their production line. And if there was a certain percentage that was surplus to the rest of their activity, they would then offset that further down the production line in order to increase the output. Um, and this, this became the concept of functionalism. Um, and the difficulty with that, the idea that you design space around optimizing human actions, is only really apparent when it moves out of the factory and very rapidly into the home. The Frankfurt Kitchen, which was designed in 1926, is perfectly optimized, as we see in Neufert's uh, designs on the right-hand side there. It's perfectly optimized for the single housewife at home during the day to make a meal for her family. But by creating that context, you enforce and indeed promote the idea that that is the ideal model of society. And so when we design spaces that perfectly match a particular pattern of life, in fact, by doing that, we make them impossible for them to change in the future. If you get a group of Italians or, or Greeks, for example, in a Frankfurt-style kitchen, it's impossible because their social and cultural logic of how they cook together is not optimized in this. Um, and in a way, what I would say is that functionalism basically predetermines the forms of life that are possible, and it also predetermines those power relations. Um, I guess as a slight aside, one of the books that I like very much is uh, called um, Critique of Everyday Life by Henri Lefebvre. And in the opening chapter, he says, I'm sitting at home writing at my desk, and uh, I see across the window in Paris on the sixth floor of her apartment block a single woman making a meal for her family during the day. And she descends down to street level. She goes down to the corner where she pays some money to the grocer and takes some groceries and goes back home. Banal scene. But if we start to question some of the things that are going on here, it can become very rapidly quite odd. I mean, first of all, why is she alone during the day? What does that tell us about her family structure? Why is she the one that's been obliged to make the meal for her family? Um, how did we end up on the sixth floor? What sort of urbanism and what sort of land rights and economic system has created this high-rise structure here? Uh, and then ultimately, like, why does she think that handing over this kind of disc of metal is in some way valuable uh, in exchange for the groceries. And what he says is, ideology doesn't exist in the abstract. There's no such thing as like capitalism. It doesn't exist anywhere. It exists only in the act of a series of multiple performances in which everyone agrees that that's how we're gonna operate. And he says, if you can intervene at the moment that she's handing over those coins and convince her they have no value whatsoever, then you destroy capitalism. Because if you change one person's mind around this, you, you can have a huge impact. And that's why I'm interested in, in the design of everyday life. And I would say that functionalism, therefore, is, is never free. Uh, but so, you know, how do we move beyond functionalism? And, and how do we create these kind of non or indeterminate? I mean, they can still be highly specific, but indeterminate forms of design. Um, you know, functionalism, I'm very suspicious as well of any proportional system that is revolves around the scale of the body because it, it's super subjective. I mean, Cabousier, I really like the Unité d'Habitation, great building, love that guy, but his uh, modular man is like a disaster because it's based on an imaginary vision of a French, a white French man from the middle of the 20th century. It's like, that's not a universal scale for anything. I mean, that's, not even Cabousier met his own modular man. It's like an imaginary figure. So why you would design an entire society around this kind of, um, 
this absent imaginary figure is beyond me. Of course, historically, there have been other ideas. Uh, Palladio and those guys, they were really interested in ideas of uh, complex uh, arithmetics, um, harmonic means, which took logic from how music is structured. And they were trying to create kind of abstract ratios uh, and, of course, there are other systems of proportion which have been proposed. I think the best one for me in the modernist period would be Mies van der Rohe, who, I mean, if you look at this plan of the Hub House of 1935, the more you analyze it, the more you... I mean, what's, uh, what's not really often said is that before Mies moves to America in 1937 to do the Racer House under Johnson's um, invitation, he almost exclusively uses the proportional systems of Alberti and Palladio. After he moves to America, uh, he switches to using the um, golden section. Uh, and this actually is a rare example of him playing with the golden section before he comes to the US. And the only reason that I have found for why he might have done that is one of his employees from the 1950s, a man called Adrian Gale, once said that Mies used to say a lot that what he loved about Chicago was the open sky and that in Europe you always try to build a flat roof to keep the gray out so everything's about narrow flat proportions but the golden section has a, a slightly higher ceiling height and so you begin to see this kind of open plains of the US which is very poetic in a way but what you can see is that he's using these abstract ratios to create what he called universal space an idea that you can arrange furniture in many different ways it's not predetermined. The function of the space is not really predetermined. They're just good spaces that have different qualities to them. And that's what, for me, sets him completely apart from uh, all of the other modernists of the 20th century. And actually, there's a beautiful example in, in, his, uh, in his hall here. Uh, it's the only example of Mies I know where there's a curved wall. And of course, he does that because he doesn't believe also in the idea of the tabula rasa, of the blank slate. He doesn't think that people should demolish stuff. He says very clearly that the architect's role is not to reimagine a totally new future, but to address reality and try and inject one or two things that augment it. And I think if you look at his extension, um, it, it's really a remarkably sensitive building to the existing structure, which, uh, which would not be true of many other architects of the 20th century. And of course, his obsession with the golden section becomes even more pronounced uh, once he really gets into the swing of working in the US. Another system of proportion, which I'm quite, this is, we're moving now towards the ones that I really like, um, is Hans van der Laan, who is a Dutch monk. He was interested in an abstract system of proportion based on a rule of sevenths, so like one through eight, basically. And the reason he was interested in this is because he was interested in ideas of legibility of space. So he would say like, there must have been a time before we had language, before we really had numbers. But nonetheless, humans must have been able to count, even in, a, in an abstract way. And you can tell quite quickly, he did sort of experiments with pebbles in his hand. If you put four or five pebbles, you just know there are five pebbles. But if you put nine pebbles, suddenly it's just like a bunch of pebbles. So he was really interested in that threshold between legibility. And so his system of proportion is scaleless. It can work at any scale and is all about an idea of creating uh, legibility. I think in terms of contemporary architects, probably the only person I know who is really effectively dealing with non-functional space is Peter Markley, the Swiss ar architect. This is a beautiful building that he did in Trubach in the late 80s. And if you look at that plan, I'm kind of reticent to like, it's too hard. But what you can see is that he's created three primary spaces um, divided almost equally uh, down the middle of the long space. Um, and the stairs are way more generous than they need to be. And you can see how the hierarchy of windows in the facade changes, the openings change as it, as it rises to create that sense of legibility um, in that front facade. But within the space itself, if you look at the entry space, there's effectively a square which has been created with the semi-enclosed kitchen and the balcony um, so that you enter into what feels like the middle of a room but in fact is not the middle of the room, it's the edge of a room. Those two columns in the middle of the plan are non-structural, which tells you a lot. I'm very interested by non-structural columns because they're there as a way of signifying the distinction of space between the area which might be associated with a kitchen and another area beyond. But apart from that, on the other side, there's not even a wall divider. I mean, the bathroom is the only thing which divides those two spaces. 
And this plan for me basically says there are many possible ways to imagine how this apartment might be laid out. There are many different um, possibilities for its spatial arrangement, and they're not deterministic in any sense. Uh, that, I think, is also true of the Japanese architect Shinohara, who is, uh, this is also a non-load-bearing column, which you can see uh, divides the two spaces. Um, and this comes down, I think, also in the Japanese tradition to something that's been very influential on me, which is the relationship between space and time. In the West, we, we design using space as the primary driver. So you can see on the left-hand side there a uh, standard two-bedroom apartment, which is currently being mass-produced in the UK. Um, and each of those spaces has a very specific function in mind. You can't easily put a bed in more than, against more than one wall. Um, so they're really only used for that purpose. And each of the rooms is designed around the minimum proportions which are required around each of the pieces of furniture. What it also means is that there's a conception that, in principle, you could be in the kitchen, in the bathroom, in the bedroom, doing all of this stuff simultaneously. And in a sense, it's all laid out for you, and you as an individual wander through space in order to achieve those different activities. Whereas if you look at the plan on the right-hand side by Shinohara, you can see quite a different logic, which says basically that the spaces are very abstract, uh, they don't really have any specific use. He labels them as the north room and the south room, which tells you about the different qualities of light which are inside them. And then from that, the furniture, I mean, it's a Western architect who's drawn in this furniture. They're not originally drawn in like this. The idea is that the furniture is very lightweight and movable, and then actually you can make it up as a bedroom at certain times of the day, as a dining room at other times of the day, as a workroom, and so on. So that the function, in a sense, changes through time, even though the space is, is fixed. Uh, it's a bit of a kind of weird one to explain. Hopefully that makes some sense in terms of that inversion of what happens when you start to think about um, time being the primary driver of design rather than space. But I'll come back to it in a minute. So common stock was the first attempt, uh, my first attempt to try and design a building that was non-functionalist in its nature. And I ended up producing this as a space, which is not quite there yet, but the logic was to try and break down this idea of the corridor and uh, the individual apartment. Inside the individual uh, tower block, you have a huge amount of redundancy, redundancy of services and redundancy of space. So if there's 20 apartments on a floor and one corridor that connects them all to the core, each one has its own miniature kitchen, miniature bathroom, miniature living room, and so on. The question was, could we have a better quality of life if we're prepared to share certain spaces with our neighbors? And so this began to atomize and break down the building core in order to remove that internal corridor, in order to create apartments which always had a direct connection to each other. Uh, and actually, by doing this, um, you, the, the room on the right-hand side of that plan is a common room on each floor. And that is the product of taking the extra 7% uh, space that you save through removing the corridor and congealing it into a kind of central area, plus some other financial mumbo-jumbo I won't go into right now. But, uh, but this was a kind of first attempt at trying to create this idea of a functionless space, even down to the idea of designing a daybed and designing a vitrine for your objects. I think we have too many objects. I mean, I, I don't have that many. My, my wife is a fashion designer. She has many clothes. It's always expanding the objects and, and trinkets that she has around the house. They're very frustrating for me as an architect because I like things to be very clean and ordered. Um, it causes a lot of tension. So the idea was, you know, is there a way for us to have these objects? Part of the problem with the objects is that they're all away in storage. So I can sense that they're there. I, I know that they're still there, but I can't see them. So my thinking was, maybe if you put all the objects into a vitrine, you might change your relationship with objects. Once you start to have your grandmother's ashes next to a transparent fridge which has last night's Chinese food, it might start you know, convincing you to reduce the amount that you own. Um, there's another piece of furniture in that room which is important, which again, I will come back to in a minute. Uh, Glasshouse was a kind of evolution of that idea. It's a, it's a co-housing model, which often co-housing is used by developers as a way to say, uh, no one gets what they want. Uh, you live in a kind of miniature like ship cabin 
And, uh, but this, this idea of co-sharing as being like what I call the hotel model, where everyone has a miniature space and then all the shared spaces are like everyone together, is a disastrous idea. I mean, I don't think I'll be making a controversial statement when I say like communism didn't work out for that reason, which was that they thought that everyone being together all the time was the way to get communism to work. But if you put everyone all together all the time, they get crazy stressed out. It's a really horrible experience. If you're going to have shared space, it needs to be done in such a way that it's voluntary. You need to be able to have your own private space and individual control over where you live in order to make the quality of that public space valuable. But what happened here was the two functional spaces which are almost impossible to destroy are the bathroom and the kitchen. Uh, they're really hard. Uh, I, I've tried a lot. And in, in this project, I. I took the form and the performative aspects of the bathroom and tried to express it as this kind of Alva Alto-esque green glass vase. Oh, I should say that the conditions for this project for the uh, Chicago Biennial were that it had to be inspired by Mies van der Rohe, which was like no-brainer for me, but also that it had to be entirely, uh, you know, the, the project that I chose of his was the glass house, so the whole thing's made out of glass. Um, including this kind of double um, louvered facade where you have an internal facade which is soundproof and double glazed and an external louvered facade which we, where I grew up in Australia, louvers are very, very common but in, in Britain people were literally confused about what they were looking at. It's used so infrequently um, but it's about environmental control of the building. But in the plan what you can see is rather than producing four apartments on that floor plate, using the existing space standards and building regulations by pooling together all the common spaces, so the, um, the living rooms and the kitchen and the dining rooms of all of these different groups, and giving each only their own bathroom and their own uh, space, basically what you have is, um, I'm very bad at converting square meters into feet, uh, that would be um, two, uh, 280 square feet per person, plus whatever the bathroom is. And then as a result, what you get in the plan are just a series of, of spaces with different qualities. They're not functionally predetermined. So there's a space in the north which gets quite a kind of soft light, which could be good for if you're working on a screen or if you have a library or if you have a dining room. And then you have a larger space that points south, which would be nice during the day, perhaps. And then you have a, a smaller space uh, which points west, which leads into a kind of internal balcony or logia which again, it's not clear exactly how the people who live here would decide to use this space, but the point is that you could be from, uh, you know, in trying to design for universal design, you're trying to create something which it doesn't matter whether you're from Zimbabwe or Norway or what your family size or structure is, you should be able to um, be able to adapt this space in a way that feels comfortable for you. Uh, this idea of sharing is quite integral to our work. This is a project which, fingers crossed, will um, come to pass, although it has immense juridical and uh, financial structural issues with it. But basically, it's premised on the idea that it's too expensive for uh, many people to have a family inside uh, cities. Uh, but if you leave the city and you move to a rural area, you're really limited to like the single family home. And for people who have grown up having um, avocado on toast and lavender lattes, you know, this idea of being isolated in a single family home in the countryside is not attractive. So how do you encourage people? I mean, it's also a political question because we have, of course, if you uh, are into progressive values like I am, I don't call them liberal because in America that's a very complicated term, but the progressive values as opposed to conservative values, then you have in the UK and in many other countries a huge polarization where the countryside is basically dominated by one political group and the city is dominated by a different one. Well, you know, how can we encourage greater intermixing of political positions? And this is one attempt to do it. So a group of friends or unrelated people uh, group together and build one of these structures in the countryside. It's basically a commune. Um, and you start with your own self-contained unit. You can see there that I'm using the Hans van der Laan plastic number um, to uh, design these kind of non-functional spaces, um, which is also true of this project for the Royal Academy. Uh, it's a summer house designed for an artist. Um, that tries to push the idea of the bathroom and kitchen dissolution even further. There are just four spaces inside this building. Each one points in a different cardinal direction as different qualities of light associated with it for the artist. Uh, but the, 
the bath, basically the WC is separate from the, from the main structure, and the bath is, is a kind of terrazzo uh, cube with an internal um, heating element which is plugged into the wall. Every room has one faucet and one power socket. So you plug in the bath, you fill it up with the hose, it heats itself, uh, which I think is very important. Uh, uh, the Japanese hate the idea of like a dead bath where you get in and it's hot and then it just gets cold while you're in it. And I agree, it would be nice if it kept heating itself. And then when you're done, you just turn a, a little, uh, you know, you clip your hose onto it and just bent it over the side. Um, and then the bed itself is basically on wheels, which allows you as a hand cart to move it from room to room. And this is an attempt to really try and push, uh, you know, the dissolution of function in this way. That's what it looks like. And I guess the final project that I want to present to you is uh, Home Economics, which was the British Pavilion in Venice. Um, Normally, I would, I would present this through the lens of, of architecture, but actually this time I decided to try and present it through the lens of um, exhibition design, uh, which means that I won't stress any of the particular projects, but more talk about an overall approach to how we think about communications. The main thing to say about home economics was that it was the first exhibition, uh, as far as we're aware from our research, ever to be curated through the lens of time spent in the home. So we created five rooms, each with a different time period, hours, days, months, years, and decades. The significance of that is that what you're basically saying is, uh, you know, in, con in, in contemporary visions of the city especially, if space is your primary driver instead of time, then the way that you think about a problem like over and under occupancy becomes kind of twisted. So you've got this condition in London where there's elderly people over 65, 70, living in five-bedroom terrace houses where there's now only one or two of them there. They've got a lot of vacant space. And then you've got all these young guys who are like crowded in where they're converting the living room into bedrooms as well. So a traditional model would say like, okay, how do we get the old people out and get the young people in, right? But through that, you destroy community, you displace this elderly generation, and uh, it's extremely traumatic for them. And in a way, it plays into this idea of kind of what I would describe as like the ghettoization of housing typologies based on age, where you graduate, you know, you, you graduate high school, you maybe go to college, you go in a dorm room, then you go into a shared apartment, you know, or, you know, this kind of student housing, then you move into the starter home, then you get the real home, then you move into the retirement village. They all seem to be kind of sectioned off. So the question was, how in a way could we design a model of housing that was appropriate for someone who was 18 and for someone who was 80? And by doing that, which we did in the Decades House, um, you know, you try to create this idea then of also uh, intergenerational communities, which I think is very important as well. Um, but yeah, in, in essence, these are the postcards that Francis mentioned. Uh, we were told by the British Council that we had to produce images of what the exhibition would look like. And I always find this extremely disappointing, like very kind of dire in a way, because renders are not reality, and you get people's hopes up if you show them something shiny and then it's not shiny. So the idea instead was how do we like ideologically prepare or ide ideologically prime people for their experience of this exhibition? And I'm very aware that with them being read back, uh, they seem quite negative. I prefer to think of myself as a realist, but one who's also an optimist. I mean, it's the nature of the architect to be optimistic. Someone comes to you and they say, we've got a small site, we've got no money, there's many planning regulations and conditions, and it'll be a really hard thing to do. And you're like, you know what, I'm gonna do the greatest thing since Palladio. It's gonna be the most beautiful building in the world. And you really believe it, and you really try hard to, because if you didn't believe that what you did improved the, the built environment and the world, you wouldn't be an architect. That's the nature of what the project means. Um, so, you know, this, this begins really from a kind of analytical standpoint in which it tries to break down some of the structures that we take for granted. I mean, the first thing is to say there's no such thing as tradition. Tradition is invented and reinvented with every generation. So traditions are open to discussion and evolution. Uh, of course, if they weren't, we'd have the same society now that we had for the last 2,000 years, and we know that's not the case. The second thing is to say there's no such thing as normal. The more you start to talk to people about their actual family structures and their family relationships, there seems to be this kind of divergence between what's considered to be socially acceptable and the reality of actually how our families are, which are universally dysfunctional. I don't know anyone interesting who has a, a functional family. Um, 
But so when we start to look at these conditions, basically the idea of these, these artworks was to give you an image which the eye will be drawn to, which should be very banal. Uh, my favorite one is the first one of the woman washing up. Uh, and then a kind of statement underneath it which might prompt you to relook at that image. Without unpaid domestic labor, the family ceases to exist. I mean, in the UK, and it's quite similar in the US, 53% of all the labor in society is unpaid. And that's overwhelmingly done by women who are uh, caretakers and household management of children, of elderly people, of friends and neighbors. If we paid those people fairly for their work, the economy would collapse because there is not enough money in circulation in order to pay them for that. 53%, more than half of the economy is based on unpaid labor. So that tells you immediately that capitalism, in order for it to exist, relies on this unpaid labor. And so that's why I'm very interested to see what will happen with the sharing economy and the way that this kind of system of micropayments seems to be rising. Because if we start actually paying everyone for everything, the system's not going to be able to support it. Uh, and in that sense, I would make a kind of conclusion and say that capitalism is based on theft. I mean, you may be voluntarily doing it in the same way that I like to pair my wife's socks uh, because, you know, she doesn't have time in the morning to find two that are the same. But that's a kind of effect, what's called effective labor or an emotional labor. But of course, I'm not paid for that. If I were paid for that, capitalism stops. Uh, so these are, you know, some, some of the ways in which we can start to think about uh, uh, analyzing the home and our domestic environments in order to really ask ourselves whether these are the relationships we want with each other and with our, our environment. I'm actually in the process of commissioning a whole piece around the indoor houseplant. Millennials, as you may be aware, I hate this term, millennials, but millennials uh, are, uh, uh, over, they've bought more houseplants than any other generation. It's like 800% more, and they love this monstera for some reason. I think it's because it's very hard to kill. But basically, we don't have, you know, we can't afford to have our own homes. We can't afford really to have families a lot of the time. And so we often also live in rental conditions which you can't have a pet. So the, but we still have this desperate desire to take care of something and to, and to feel that uh, you know, um, sense of s someone being dependent on us. And so we get houseplants, which we then brutally murder. Um, and you know this, this middle one here, I mean these two, I'll just mention these two before I move on because I'm aware that I'm running out of time. But the shared home promotes aggressive economic con uh, competition. You never see this more in, than in the passive-aggressive post-it notes left on the, you know, where's the milk? buy more bread or have you been eating my apples? But you know, you see it most in the bathroom, which is this kind of extremely vulnerable space of conflict, I think, um, with all of these toothbrushes fighting for each other. And the, the final thing I would say is that it's more expensive to be poor than rich. It is the case that if you have sufficient capital to buy in advance and to plan your future, you get away with paying a lower unit cost. Um, the poorer you are, the more you're exploited by the need to buy individual rations and so on. And I think that that is something which is fundamentally unfair. Um, so this was kind of what happens when you took that idea I mentioned of the common vitrine of the uh, uh, of uh, common stock and project it into actual space and see how it works. This is the shared room of um, the hours space. And it, what does this mean, a house for hours? Well, in the project I showed you, the idea is to create that additional space which is outside your home, and, but which is still, because of the, the fact that it's a skyscraper, still within inside a kind of an immediate domestic relationship with three other apartments. So you're trying to create a space which is somehow in between the public and the private, but which can be used collectively. And uh, so it's filled with all the types of objects that we might want to um, share between us. And the question there was, as we began to do research into this, of course, there's banal things like vacuum cleaners. I mean, ecologically, the world does not need every apartment to have a vacuum cleaner. Because when you think about the use of objects through time, you know, Uber, its slogan is your own private driver, which I've always admired as a piece of marketing. What they're suggesting is the idea that when you're in that car, that driver is yours and the car is yours. But when you get out, you no longer have a relationship of ownership. That's ownership through time, as opposed to a more traditional model, which would say you've got to buy the car, and even though it's sitting in the driveway 18 hours of the day, you know, you need to own it, right? When we start to think about domestic objects like vacuum cleaners, 
and uh, you know push chairs or strollers for children. These are the types of things that, or power tools, things that we use very infrequently. And then we worked with a British uh, fashion designer, J.W. Anderson, to come up with a gender-neutral, age-neutral fashion collection, which was pretty wild. But people were into it. Uh, this is the home for days. Uh, the idea being that if you're traveling every couple of days, you can't possibly um, really feel at home. And so taking this idea of digital connectivity as being the definition of home for days, the idea that you are able to connect to your Spotify, to your Facebook, to your Amazon, and that's how you feel some form of connectivity. They then mash that up uh, with the history of inflatable architecture, which in the 60s and 70s with people like Archie Graham and Hans Hollein was viewed as a way to uh, atomize and, and, and um, dissolve uh, architectural form. But actually, inflatable architecture went in a really weird direction. It went towards the jumping castle, and it went towards like the airbed or air mattress, which hence like Airbnb is air, airbed and, and breakfast. And so they took these things which are called zorbs, which you roll down hills in as a form of entertainment, and created them as a kind of portable structure that you take with you, if, if you as you move every couple of days. This was the decade space, which I won't go into. This is the years space which I won't go into, except to say that um, those brown envelopes are the terms and conditions of a mortgage that we designed with Royal Bank of Scotland, which all things being equal will be available in 2019. And the fact that they're included in the exhibition tells you very much that I believe that the mortgage is a type of design instrument. Um, and of course, a home for months, which in a way is one that we can relate to most, I think. I wonder if I know the picture of that. Um, which is, every city is, upset about the rise of Airbnb and the fact that Airbnb takes up homes that other people would, should be living in. Um, that's because we don't have a specific typology for people who need to live longer than a hotel and less than a, than a real home. Uh, and so when you start to think about the design of the home through specific periods of time, a home specifically designed for months is very different from a home specifically designed for decades or for days. Uh, and, and I think that's quite a kind of key thing to mention. Um, in terms of the exhibition design itself, I hate exhibitions that are books on walls. You know, where they have like a thousand, I mean the French pavilion this, the same year that we exhibited, had like a thousand words of text outside, and it looked even more because it was in three languages. And it's just like, it's so exhausting that you have to prime yourself so much with all these words before you go in. And architecture isn't about words, architecture is about the experience of space. And if you're talking to people who are part of a general audience, it's, it's hard to communicate through images. It's, it's actually even hard to communicate through things like plans and models. The plans that I showed earlier, if you're non-architects, you're probably not used to reading drawings of that kind and really understanding what they represent. So our idea was that these spaces should be full scale. You don't need to imagine what space would be like. You're, you're in it. It's a direct experience. And also, the attention span in Venice is you get about 30 seconds of people wandering in to a pavilion, wandering around, and coming out. So that, in a sense, is the smallest period of time that we were dealing with. So the idea was that the spaces themselves are completely devoid of all text and all explanation. You can just wander in, have a look, see how you feel. Then every room has a kind of slogan which begins to describe something more about uh, what it is and what it's trying to communicate to you. And then everyone who came got a little pamphlet uh, which gave them 150 or 200 words, a little diagram. And then behind that, you have the full academic research of the catalogue. Um, the final thing I'll say, because I think that's pretty much, well, there's two more things to say, sorry. Uh, one is that I propose that everyone be listed alphabetically. There was a team of 100 people on it. I propose that they all be listed alphabetically without giving any credit and uh, to what it is they'd done, so that the interns and the director of the British Council would be ranked next to each other, and it went down like a lead balloon. People are very, very averse to making these types of collective um, propositions, and I think that tells us a lot about the limits of sharing today. Um, I don't have time to say anything more about that, except to say that, of course, Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, made the statement that ethics and aesthetics are one. What he means by that is the mode of presentation, the visual appearance of something is intricately tied, or in fact inseparable from, the moral proposition which has created the thing in the first place. And the way that I would in a way translate that into a contemporary form 
would be to say that attitude assumes form, that the beliefs that we have always result in some sort of material object. And the more we're refined about what we believe and the more we think carefully about how to translate that into form, the more uh, effective we will be as designers. I think I will stop there. Thank you very much. For more information on Jack Self and other lectures, visit the Events tab on the Rice Architecture website. Don't forget to subscribe through your favorite platform to keep up with new releases. I'm your host, Rose Wilkowski, and this has been Tete-a-Tete. -tete.